0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello
2: and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen and I'm Caroline. And today we are looking at Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder. And this was a listener request. Uh, someone wrote in saying, Hey, I am a girl with ADHD and I've noticed that a lot of times when I hear conversations about ADHD, it's focused more on boys. It's a similar kind of thing that happens with autism. It's one of those disorders that uh, you see a diagnostic gender gap, but it does not mean that... ADHD does not exist among girls and women.
4: Yeah, like a, like a lot of things along these same lines, you know, it just presents differently in girls and women. And, and I think that's so interesting because I too always just thought ADHD affected more boys than girls, more men than women. And while more boys certainly are diagnosed with it than women are, um, and girls, uh, that doesn't mean that fewer girls and women suffer from it.
2: So what are we talking about when we're talking about ADHD? I, I have a feeling that it's a, such a common term and diagnosis these days that a lot of listeners are probably familiar with it. But just for a refresher, it is one of the most common childhood disorders. Now it's second only to asthma in the most commonly diagnosed long-term disorders hmm. in kids, which is pretty astounding. Um, it can last through adulthood, and it's marked by things like excessive motor activity, inattention, and impulsiveness. And there are actually... Three different subtypes of ADHD.
4: Yeah, you can be predominantly hyperactive, impulsive, predominantly inattentive, and a combination of hyperactive and impulsive and inattentive. And it's that inattention that is really more associated with girls. And when you're inattentive, it's it's not that you're not listening. It's more that you have trouble focusing or maybe you become bored easily. You have poor attention to detail, forgetfulness but this is a less disruptive hallmark of it of ADHD than being hyperactive and impulsive so instead of sitting there tapping your leg really fast drumming on your on your desk with your pencil hitting the the student next to you children who exhibit inattentiveness as a hallmark of ADHD, are more likely to just, you know, kind of sit there quietly and stare out the window. And speaking of that hyperactive piece, um, one
2: aspect, too, is that it's commonly associated or co-occurs, I should say, with oppositional defiant disorder. Uh, it has a 50% co-occurrence rate. And that, again, is a more outwardly visible, outwardly manifesting kind of disorder that also tends to happen more often in boys and tends to get the attention of teachers and parents because, mm-hmm. I mean, when you're, when you're oppositional defined, I mean, that, I mean, the definition is kind of there in the title. Like you're going to notice that kind of
4: hyperactivity. Right. Well, there is a, uh, an interesting history to ADHD, but also an interesting history of the diagnoses and the fact that they have been on the rise for the last 30 years, but their descriptions in medical lit- literature go back like 200 years. It's just a matter of they weren't Called ADHD at the time.
2: Yeah, it's been known by various terms such as sensibility of the nerves, having the fidget. I love that. Having the fidget. Having the fidget. I definitely get the fidget sometimes. Um, there was also a period of time too where, you know, when medical science wasn't so developed that it was thought that kids Particularly boys who had the fidgets really were suffering
4: from defects
2: of moral control.
4: Yeah, it's interesting the, that phrasing, um, because they just assumed that people with these kind of developmental disabilities or disorders, um, that they weren't sure what they were at the time, they did have some like lacking of this internal compass that, you know, uh, call, I don't know, just it was, it's sort of scary and awful and terrible to hear ADHD or ADD described as like a moral problem.
2: Yeah, and then after you have the the moral control issue sort of fade from the medical literature, it becomes renamed as a minimal brain dysfunction, which also, you know, speaking of scary, yeah. um so it it for a while you have it for a while 200 years, you have it described here and there in medical literature, but doctors never exactly figure out what it is, but throughout that 200-year history it is predominantly described in boys, mostly European boys. And because of that legacy, that's a, a reason why even today we see often a diagnostic gender gap.
4: Yeah. And we'll get into more of that, which it's, it's super fascinating. So, so stay tuned. But anyway, um, so moving far forward in history, in 1968, the diagnostic statistical manual includes hyperkinetic reaction to childhood. Which also sounds scary. It's like something really terrible is going on and you're having a reaction to your own childhood. And in that first uh, inclusion of
2: a precursor to what we now call ADD in the DSM, it describes it as being characterized by overactivity, restlessness, distractibility, and short attention span, especially in young children. And that Mm -hmm. was the thought back then was that it was particularly something that affected kids and that you would eventually
4: grow out of it. Sure. And you have to like, it makes me wonder, you know, there are a lot of skeptics out there who just say that, you know, we should just let kids be kids and that all kids have a degree of being hyper or, or, you know, maybe we should just let them run free and and be happy and not worry about diagnosing them with things that we're over diagnosing childhood. But, I mean, I guess when you're trying to get your child to actually focus in class, things like that, that can be an issue. Absolutely. It can have a very real-world
2: impact, not just on behavioral issues, perhaps at home, but on academic performance as well. And we'll also get into how ADHD can have particularly negative effects on girls and mm-hmm. how that interacts with gendered socialization. There are a lot of different layers to this. Um, but in 1980, the DSM-3 Finally renames it attention deficit disorder with or without hyperactivity.
4: Right. And we do see some more, uh, diagnostic criteria changing a little bit, which actually benefits girls, I, I would think. Um, but so where, where does, where does ADHD come from? Do you catch it? Do you Are catch you born it? with it? Well, do you just catch the fidgets? Yeah. <laughs> No, that was the different episode. That was uh that was our mass hysteria episode.
2: Oh yeah, can can we mention though the German doctor Heinrich Hoffmann included in this paper on the history of ADHD, who created a character called Fidgety Phil.
4: That book went through something like four hundred editions.
2: Yeah. And this was sort of along the lines or in the school of thought of ADHD as a moral deficit. Mm-hmm. And so Fidgety Phil became this long standing caricature. Of a boy who, I mean, clearly had the fidgets.
4: But, but, am I thinking of the right book that the child always like dies, like enters like a fatal, like he's looking up and he's distracted and then he falls off a cliff? Yes, is that Fidgety Phil? It, that might be. There's Fidgety Phil. There's also like absent-minded Abe.
2: Or something. there are a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of uh, alliteration going on right. in the book. But that could be Fidgety Phil.
4: Poor Fidgety Phil.
2: Fidgety Phil might just fidget himself off the side of a cliff.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so talking about where Fidgety Phil gets his fidgets from. Do you like that? I do. How much wood would a woodchuck chuck uh, if a woodchuck were on Adderall? Um, <laughs> neuroimaging suggests that abnormalities in frontal, subcortical, cerebellar systems whew, involved in the regulation of attention, motor behavior, and inhibition have something to do with it.
2: Yeah, and doctors aren't entirely sure why it happens, but there are now a lot of studies that have been conducted on ADHD, and there's clearly a genetic component. Um, if your parents have ADHD, there's a good chance you will. Same is these with your grandparents. Twin studies have shown also that it's highly heritable, and there seems to be a particular gene that is correlated to thinner brain tissue in areas associated with attention. And one reason Why some people kind of age out of ADHD is because that same brain tissue also tends to thicken
4: as we age. There have also been links in uh, the literature between ADHD and environmental factors like uh, smoking cigarettes when you're pregnant, uh, kids exposed to lead. Um, There's also a brain injury link, but really only a small number of kids with ADHD have experienced traumatic brain injury. There's also a question around food additives, although the research is pretty sketchy on that one.
2: Yeah, there's uh, the idea that excessive sugar in foods is causing all of this ADHD, which makes sense because we often think of kids plus sugar Mm -hmm. equals rambunctious. Uh, But the sugar theory has been largely debunked by research. Yeah, exactly. So the previous line of thinking uh, it was that around 5% of kids in the U.S. were affected by ADHD. But diagnoses have been tremendously on the rise since the 1990s. And today, according to the National Institutes of Health, 9% of U.S. children between the ages of 13 and 18 years old have been previously diagnosed with it. And that rate of diagnosis has increased an average of 3% between 1997 and 2006, and then 5% between 2003 and 2011. So uh, clearly the diagnoses are increasing exponentially. And another important piece to this is not only are children's diagnoses on the rise, but also adult diagnoses. So now the NIH is also saying that around 4.1% of adults in a given year are are diagnosed with ADHD,
4: right? Because people are starting to realize, oh, my kids, my kids have it, and they're learning more about the disorder, and then they realize, oh, oh, I guess I have it too. Yeah,
2: and there has been an important change in the most recently released DSM five, which includes having the symptoms stretch back to age twelve rather than previously age seven, which is a recognition of girls' symptoms, mm-hmm. um, as we'll talk about. And also uh, that it can just generally happen a little bit later. So if you're an adult and you don't know if it goes all the way back to seven, that doesn't necessarily mean that, oh, nope, don't have it.
4: Right. Exactly. So, I mean, speaking of gender, we talked about how a lot of the early studies and diagnostic criteria were based on. Just boys. Boys were thought to be the ones that this really affected. Girls, not so much. Or, you know, girls were just different. And they didn't have to experience the horrors of ADHD. And, I mean, that's even reflected in the numbers of studies, you know. Um uh, One researcher noted that in 1995, there were only two studies that she knew of at the time examining adult women, for instance, in ADHD. It just wasn't thought to be a priority. This was a boy's problem. Yeah,
2: it was really, it, it jumped out at me to see how the arc of ADHD recognition started out with boys, then moved into adult populations, and only recently is circling around to girls. Mm -hmm. So even adult women might be likelier to get a diagnosis compared to girls. And it's for that reason that the National Institutes of Health says that boys are four times the risk than girls
4: of getting an ADHD diagnosis. Right, but a lot of experts weighing in now contend that boys and girls are equally at risk for those diagnostic and uh, referral gender biases that we mentioned. And according to one poll, it seems like people do have a general idea that girls are less likely to be served in this area.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, there was a Harris Interactive poll a a couple years ago, I think, finding that 85% of respondents agreed that, yeah, girls are probably not going to get any kind of ADHD diagnosis. And even though the common line of thinking, like we said, is that ADHD presents itself more outwardly in boys with more hyperactivity. And for a long time, that's been the assumption as to why there is this gender gap in diagnosis. It's like, oh, well, girls predominantly exhibit the inattentive subtype of ADHD. So we're just not noticing it because she just seems a little dreamy, a little
4: forgetful, Mm -hmm. no big deal. Right. So when you look back at early referrals to psychiatric clinics, these were motivated by those outward obvious difficulties presented when you have the hyperactivity and the disruptiveness. This ended up being mostly young white boys. So they were the basic for a lot of the diagnostic criteria Um, Ellen Littman, who's a psychologist, calls this a referral bias and a diagnostic bias. Uh, Girls who were diagnosed uh, years ago, decades ago, typically throughout history, girls who were diagnosed with having this type of disorder had to exhibit the type of behavior that boys did. Because like Kristen said, if it was anything else, if it was just inattentiveness, it was often Overlooked and it was that 1980 DSM, those new diagnostic criteria that allowed for the possibility of inattention without hyperactivity. And starting at that point, we see this huge jump in the number of girls diagnosed. But even when that hyperactivity
2: variable remains constant, gender still plays such a strong role in determining whether or not children are going to be referred to services, at least according to results from a 2009 study in the Journal of Clinical Adolescent Psychology, which gave parents and teachers these short vignettes to read about boys and girls who were exhibiting ADHD behavior in class and asked them whether or not they would refer the kids to learning services. And overwhelmingly, whether the girls were also displaying in these vignettes, these fictional uh, little short stories, even if the girls were also displaying hyperactive behavior, the boys were still more likely to receive these fictional learning services because, quote, the parents and teachers believe that learning assistance is less effective for girls, which is a little bit of weird wording in the abstract because what they kind of mean to say as they describe more in the body of the study is that it seems like there is a greater emphasis placed on boys' academic success than, And girls' academic success. So it's like, even Mm -hmm. if all these girls are struggling in the classroom, we're still a little bit more likely to pay attention to little Johnny's progress compared Mm to little Janie's progress.
4: Well, poor little Janie.
2: Poor little Janie. And that's, I mean, that's also a study finding that needs... More research on it, yeah. but it's interesting to see that it, w- it was notable that even when that hyperactivity is held constant, gender is still the primary variable. And it's said too that, um, gender is, that being a girl essentially, um, is more of a determinant for you not getting a diagnosis compared to living in a poor area, not having health insurance, not even having like access to services nearby, all of those combined, you're still more likely to get a diagnosis Mm -hmm. if you're a boy than if you're a girl. Hmm.
4: Well, um, we will get more into the gendered aspect of ADHD and some of the hallmarks of girls'
0: experience with ADHD when we come right back from a quick break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: Billy Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals, it was automatic art.
3: You know, I had to, like, choose a more challenging route than just, like, da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been, like, easier. And a lot of people have asked me, like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and, like, so simple? And what else was it going to... Like, that's what the song wanted.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline.
3: Hey, Sarah. I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. Oh! Gee, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented.
1: Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated.
2: we left off, we had established that there has at least historically been this gender gap in ADHD diagnosis, but that uh, more recent research is now catching up to the fact that girls also experience it as well, but possibly in a different way than boys do. So let's talk a little bit about the hallmarks of female ADHD,
4: yeah, hormones are a pain in the neck, man, like or literally pain in the brain, pain all over your body uh, because of your endocrine system. Um anyway, so symptoms of ADHD increase with puberty for girls, but not boys, thanks to handy dandy estrogen. At puberty, Girls' ADHD-related behavior tends to ramp up while boys' calms down a little bit. Not saying that they outgrow it necessarily, just saying that we tend to notice the hallmarks, the symptoms of it among girls as they get older and as their hormones start to change at puberty.
2: So that's a big reason why the criterion for ADHD has changed from having to have it since the age of 7 up to now having to have it since 12, when, you, you know, the classic age for... Puberty to start.
4: Yeah, and we also we, I mean, girls and women have to deal with the fact that people are always mixing up our health symptoms with PMS and PMDD. Oh, yeah, I know. Well, they just figure, oh, well, if you're having trouble concentrating or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it's probably just you know something else going on. Um, Dr. Littman, the psychologist that we cited earlier, calls this sort of a, a perfect storm. Uh, you have internalized symptoms, escalating estrogen, mounting shame and demoralization in response to societal expectations, because it's around this time that you're hitting puberty. Your hormones are changing. You're so worried about fitting in and being like the perfect girl or whatever. Um, but, you know, your brain has other plans
2: for you. Yeah, and experts on girls and ADHD often point out that gendered socialization has a major impact on how girls manage their ADHD. We're likelier to internalize, and despite probably having trouble paying attention, getting schoolwork done, there's still more of a perfectionism that tends to run through girls even with ADHD um, and we are three times more likely to have been on antidepressants prior to an ADHD diagnosis, probably because, like you mentioned, a lot of times these kinds of symptoms that we exhibit are usually mixed up for things like, oh, well, she's just PMSing, or oh, she's just depressed. She's a little bit moody. Give her some Paxil.
4: Right. <laughs> right. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, uh, our social penalties that we undergo, that we deal with as girls, Tend to be worse uh, than than the ones experienced by boys. We're more likely to be rejected by our peers um, because if you think about you know, uh, let's just call, let's have an average stereotypical girl with inattentive type ADHD. You know, she may retreat into herself if she's not picking up on jokes fast enough, or if she's unable to kind of pick up on your feelings fast enough, read your face to know oh I shouldn't make a joke she's sad or oh she's joking I don't get it. You know, they can tend to be judged as selfish, so they internalize their feelings. They try not to, they don't want to appear selfish. They're not, but, you know, so they end up retreating into themselves even more. They might overestimate their social competence, think that they're funnier or more with it than they are. Uh, they could exhibit a rebellious stance and relational aggression. And then there's the whole perfectionism as far as schoolwork goes, where um, I think it was Ellen Littman talking about when girls with ADHD procrastinate as girls and boys with ADHD are wont to do, they are more likely than boys at the last minute to bust their butts to make this project perfect because they still have this drive to be little people pleasers.
2: Yeah, and um even though we've talked a lot about how the hallmark symptoms of girls ADHD, that's in quotes, um how it's more commonly associated with the inattentive, dreamy type, hyperactivity also exists in girls. That that was one thing another expert pointed out. She was like, don't forget that the H in ADHD can also manifest in girls as well. And I was just thinking about that and the socialization issue and reflecting back on middle school years and trying to fit in with girls. Mm -hmm. And if like, just remembering some girls that I was around who were clearly hyperactive and how they were socially ostracized Or that because it's like, ah, in those, in those years and through high school too, and even out of high school, unfortunately, it's like this fine line that girls often have to walk between, you know, being, I don't know, like being not too quiet, but not too loud. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it's like, if, if you have ADHD, you're far more likely to be either one or the other. Yeah. And so it's probably because of this that research has also found That if left untreated, girls with ADHD are at risk for chronic low self-esteem, underachievement, anxiety, depression, and teen pregnancy and early smoking in middle school and high school. And that's coming from psychologist Kathleen Nadeau, who is uh, another expert in girls and ADHD that we've been citing. And I mean, this reading all of these articles too about girls and ADHD. We're They're heartbreaking because it's the same thing over and over and over again for this kind of internalization while striving to make the
4: grade and fit in if possible and just manage
2: everything.
4: And we've talked about the imposter syndrome before on the podcast, but a lot of these girls, you know, they're working so hard, and they might be getting A's, they might be getting all A's, but they're like, I, you know, I have to work so much harder than little Susie over here. Why do I have to work so much harder just to get an A when she seems to breathe through it? And so you feel like, I'm, I must not be very smart. And so that ties into the whole self-esteem issue, too. And um, a study in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology found that uh, girls with ADHD, especially those with signs of impulsivity, are three to four times more likely to attempt suicide and two to three times more likely to attempt self-injury. And with this study, um, it's worth pointing out that it followed this group of girls
2: into adulthood and kind of checked up with them after a five or ten year period. And it wasn't this kind of suicidal or self-injurious behavior wasn't happening like right then in adolescence when they were first talking to them, but it was... With girls who perhaps weren't getting the treatment that Mm -hmm. they needed and were, had been dealing for years with all of this stuff and this is how, you know, it was manifesting in these kinds of, uh, these kinds of negative behaviors. And also too, I want to point out that our focus on girls with ADHD and these kinds of issues is not to discount you know, boys struggles with it as well, or oh, to say yeah. that if, you know, boys are just running around. They don't, they don't care if they're having trouble paying attention. But research does find that the social penalties for girls are often a lot harsher for boys, but I'm so sure that boys experience a lot of this as well. It's just the fact that they are a lot likelier to at least be recommended for learning services or mm-hmm. diagnosis treatment, something.
4: Um whereas a lot of girls are just being kind of left left out. Yeah, yeah. You're more likely to expect a boy to have to come up against ADHD and to have to treat him for it, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas you're more likely to be like, ah, oh, that girl's such an airhead. Yeah. Or she can handle it. Yeah.
2: You know? Little Susie, little Janie can push on through. Um, but when you look at women, like the adult population of ADHD, um, women also experience it and it's like, it's sort of a grown up version of these same kinds of stressors piled on top of stressors mm-hmm. that may- maybe have an even harsher impact on us as women because, oh hello, life responsibilities. <laughs>
4: Yeah, uh, researchers have found that women, adult women with untreated ADHD tend to have more trouble with things like time management and organization, stress management, anxiety, and depression. And a lot of it ties into that constant stress they feel due to managing demands of everyday life. They, they're more likely to exhibit a learned helplessness style of responding to negative situations and feeling less control over their lives. I mean, if, if you are someone who is struggling with Inattention and, and you can't focus and you're forgetful, you might feel like everything is such a struggle. Oh yeah. I mean, and just
2: thinking about, not to make this all about me, Caroline, but thinking just about that organization factor. Like for me, if my house isn't clean and organized, I can't get anything done. Yeah. It's like this brain <laughs> organization connection where like if my environment, like if I don't feel like I have control, over my environment, as I'm sure if, you know, for women with ADHD, like that must happen all the time, mm-hmm. then I can't, I just like can barely handle myself.
4: Yeah. No, I, I found, so I had to sympathize with one of the, the scenarios that one of these psychologists was talking about as far as like women with ADHD might exert just, just the way that girls in school might have to work so much harder just to get that A, to focus to get that A women with ADHD have to work so hard to stay organized that it's like, it's just mentally exhausting. And I, I totally sympathize. Like I'm constantly cleaning up after myself past mm-hmm. Caroline screws over future Caroline all the time, I'm not hanging up my clothes, I'm not putting my stuff away, so I come into my environment, whether it's my desk at work or my desk at home or my room or wherever, and I'm like, oh, I can't focus, I can't accomplish anything, let me make 15 to-do lists.
2: Yeah, it feel it feels chaotic, and uh, that also reminds me of this article that we read in The Week, and it was written by a woman with ADHD, but she didn't get a diagnosis until after college, and she just talked about how like revolutionary it was for her life, like pre and post diagnosis, because she talked about how before that her apartment, I mean, she would lose her keys. She Mm -hmm. would lose her cell phone. She would find it in just the most random of places. And, and not to say that women with ADHD, like can't get their lives together or anything like that. But you know, it's these environmental factors make such a difference as well. And what was interesting, um too, regarding women in these ADHD diagnoses is that the primary way that the light bulb goes off of like, oh, wait, no, this might actually have to do with something going on in my brain, not me just being a terrible adult, mm-hmm. is that their kids get a diagnosis yeah. and they hear the doctors talking about these symptoms and they're like, oh, this sounds a lot like me. Because again, there's that highly genetic component.
4: It's so interesting. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah, it's just it's so unfortunate that there's like this whole lifetime of this whole lifetime cycle of a delay in diagnosis just because I'm a girl. I must be less likely to have it. Maybe I'm just an airhead. Maybe I just can't keep track. of I mean, I lose my my mother for like two separate Christmases has given me these things that you put on your key ring to like you if you can't find your keys you you beep this little remote and it helps you find your keys but what if you lose the remote oh no trust me i lost the remote i would lose the remote
2: <laughs> i would totally lose the remote and, and and this is one thing too where uh one of the articles that we read about this was was phrased in a way of something along the lines of women and ADD it's a diagnosis not an excuse because there i think there is this perception because the rates of diagnosis have increased so quickly. I think it's raised a lot of skeptical eyebrows for some people who don't have these kinds of neurological issues, looking, you know, throwing some shade and saying, well, they just need to pay more attention or do something. But for these
4: women who have ADHD, I mean, it's a very real issue. Yeah. They, you know, speaking of those skeptics, doctors will tell you and, and psychologists will tell you that there are a lot of life things that can happen to you that can mimic these hallmarks of ADHD. I mean, if you're going through an incredibly stressful time at work, if you're not sleeping, if you're drinking too much. Going through a breakup. Yeah, there's like all of these stressors that can happen that can make you feel crazy. And um, I started thinking about it. I'm like, okay, I see. I see that there are life things like stress that can make this happen. And I see that you can be ADHD. And I was like, but... But aren't the life situations, like the situational ADHD symptom type things, don't those go away? Mine have never gone away. So I feel like I should... Caroline,
2: I think you might be doing a little bit of your podcast diagnosis. Your, your, I know. Your, your
4: sminty symptom checker. I told my boyfriend last night, I was like, uh, "I th- I think I have ADHD. And he looks at me and he's like, what are you doing for the podcast this week? <laughs> it's true. But, hey, you know...
2: It could be worth checking into. It could be. If you're, if you're concerned. Yeah, I could finally it. get my apartment organized. But the good news is though, there are so many resources out there, mm-hmm. specifically focused on women and girls. There's the National Center for Gender Issues and ADHD. There's the National Center for Girls and Women with ADHD. There are all sorts of books now, specifically focused on women in ADHD, local support groups even. So, you know, the resources and the research are starting to definitely catch up with the, you know, the female population. Um, But where the skepticism kind of starts to creep in a bit more, I think is not so much with, you know, whether or not ADHD exists, but more in the treatment of it. Because we got to talk about ADHD meds. And how for some people, they have been wonder drugs. And for some other people, they've also been wonder drugs, but not necessarily because they have ADHD.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think we all know people who have misused things like Adderall or Ritalin in order to cram for a test, to lose weight, to do XYZ, to be like a wonder woman in their lives or wonder man. Yeah, I mean, there have been trend pieces
2: since you and I were in college, Caroline, about... College students in the library buying Adderall to stay up all night Mm -hmm. to, you know, to study or buying Adderall to stay up all night to party.
4: Well, I yeah, I remember friends doing this freshman year and me just thinking like, I I just like sleep. I'm fine with not studying all night. Um, But it's interesting to look at like this this notch in the timeline. Because since 1990, the number of kids on ADHD medication has soared from 600,000 to 3.5 million people. But you also have to look at the, what happened in the late 1990s, which is federal guidelines were loosened, allowing uh, marketing firms basically... To market controlled substances like stimulants directly to the public, a lot of case, in a lot of cases, marketing them to moms specifically.
2: Oh yeah, there were, you know, all of these ads, you've probably seen them, listeners in magazines or in commercials, where there's a happy mom standing there with her usually son holding up a test with like a B plus on Yay. it. And she's, you know, with a tagline, something along the lines of, He's finally living up to his academic potential, Mm -hmm. brought to
4: you by Adderall. Yeah, a lot of ads driving home the fact of, like, don't you want to ease the tension in your family? Yes. Don't you want the best for your son? Don't you want him to perform better in school, Mom? Yeah, so there has been this troublesome relationship
2: between (laughs) pharmaceutical companies like Shire, which makes Adderall, And this rise in ADHD diagnoses and the New York Times magazine recently did a big piece on how this rise in ADHD diagnoses among kids and adults has coincided, obviously, with the rise in ADHD uh, medication. And I mean, Shire is making billions Mm -hmm. off of Adderall, I mean, not to mention all of the other kinds of you know, name brand medications like Concerta, Ritalin, et cetera, and how a lot of these pharmaceutical companies have recruited a lot of doctors with really great titles mm-hmm. and research—you know, heavy backgrounds who have studies that they've published—to go out and speak to groups of doctors and suggest that they really look out for signs of ADHD and really, you know, push some push some Adderall their yeah. way. Exactly. And, and that's so unfortunate because clearly this is, you know, ADHD absolutely exists, but it's once these kinds of murky relationships between doctors and big pharma come up that you, you know, you, you give more credence to skeptics who
4: say, oh, you know, mm-hmm. this is all made up. Yeah. For instance, uh, Dr. Keith Connors, who's a specialist in ADHD, was almost angry in this story when he heard about the numbers, because the numbers of, of children and adults on ADHD meds, he says the numbers make it look like an epidemic, but it's not. It It does affect people, for sure. People struggle with it, men, women, boys, girls. But the fact is that he doesn't think, and a lot of other doctors don't think that, the numbers are accurate as far as who's on medicine versus who actually has ADHD.
2: Yeah, I think there's definitely been some overdiagnosis that's gone on. And also, and this is kind of a side note, we don't have, I don't have sources in front of me on this. But one thing that comes to mind is that we're now, we've come through a generation of kids who receive this diagnosis and maybe a prescription to Adderall or Ritalin when they were kids, now they're adults, they're our age mm-hmm. and they still have these prescriptions and it doesn't seem like there has been a lot of attention paid to long-term management outside yeah. of just popping pills because just popping pills when it comes to popping stimulants doesn't always lead to the healthiest
4: lifestyles or sure. healthiest, uh, you know, physical, mental impacts. Yeah, because not only would some people maybe take them for the wrong reasons, but then you've got to deal with heart palpitations, insomnia, just general icky health issues from maybe taking the wrong dose or taking the wrong pill or maybe not needing to take it at all. But the fact of the matter is Adderall ain't going
2: nowhere. Uh, Express Scripts told NPR earlier this year that it expects ADHD medications to rise 25% in the next 5 years um and it's risen 35.5% just between 2008 and 2012 among people with private insurance um and while children's use of ADHD medications were up 19% adults use rose 53%. Yeah,
4: cuz i mean there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of it is that kids are kids are growing up and yeah. becoming grown-ups who need medicine. Part of it is that you've got moms who are looking at their kids saying, oh, this explains my struggles in school. I need to be on this medicine. And then you've got a lot of people who are saying, I need to study for exams. I need to lose weight. I need to be Wonder Woman. Yeah,
2: I mean, because the fact of the matter is, as as a stimulant, you can get a lot done. You know, you can, if you want an edge, this happens a lot in academia, too, where uh, you know, in a publishing heavy kind of job where if you need to sit there and stare at books and read thick, you know, papers and then write thick papers, Adderall has been a wonder drug for a lot of people. There are even some people, there was an article, a couple of articles actually, I think, in uh, Slate, for instance, from these writers saying, yeah, I'd I take Adderall. It's amazing. I write so much.
4: Yeah, and before we make this sound super attractive to you, you have to remember that Adderall is a Schedule to controlled substance as are morphine and oxycodone, meaning it has a high risk for addiction or abuse. Yeah, and there are side effects that go along with chronic
2: abuse such as severe rash, insomnia, irritability, personality changes. Um, And we're focusing so much on Uh, Adderall use and ADHD medication because its use is actually increasing the most demographics wise among young women, which probably has to do with a lot of what we're talking about in terms of, you know, the, the diagnostic gender gap closing. But it probably also has to do a little bit with some. Uh, abuse happening because of the side effects of things like weight management, mm-hmm. because if you take a stimulant, you're probably not going to want to eat too much. Uh, school cram sessions, maybe staying out and partying. I mean, there are a lot of, I don't know, just hang out on a college campus. Kids will tell you about it.
4: Yeah. And I wonder how much of it is tied to gender norms. Yeah. You've got to be the right kind of woman. You know, you've got to be thin. You've got to be organized. You have to be neat and tidy. You need to be successful. You have to be successful. You've got to, you know, work all day, come home, cook dinner, do the dishes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah. And I think that a lot of people have found Adderall to be, a, a, you know, a simple way, a simple in quotes way to make all of that happen, to have it all. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so while it's heartening to see that there, you know, is a greater likelihood that if you are a girl or a woman with ADHD, that there will be resources there for you, that you might be more likely to be recommended for something, um, that treatment is available. But there's that other piece of this whole ADHD issue, which is what do we do about, I don't think it's so much an ADHD epidemic that might be happening as much as, an Adderall epidemic, not Mm -hmm. to sound like my mother, you know, but, but I don't know. What do you, is it too alarmist to
4: say that? I think the numbers are pretty crazy. I think uh, Dr. Connors is right when he says that it's not an epidemic of adhd it's not that we're we're birthing all of these children every day who you know are destined to not be able to concentrate Mm -hmm. it's it is more that just i think more and more people are like i can get stuff done yeah on adderall
2: yeah um but it's it's just important too that while a lot of doctors hail it like we keep using the term wonder drug but that there are side effects mm-hmm. as with any medication. And it's yeah. going to also, as with every health issue we talk about on this podcast, affect different bodies differently. Sure. Absolutely. So whew. did we end this on a down note? I don't want to end this on a down note.
4: No, I think we ended it on a kind of a warning. Yeah. Uh, a warning of, of uh, you know, you want to take care of yourself a little buyer beware. Yeah. You should always beware a little bit when it comes to our bodies and yeah. brains. We want we want little Janie
2: to grow up to be healthy. Yeah. But I got to say so so fascinating those gendered socialization issues that often yeah. compound a lot of this ADHD stuff for girls.
4: Fascinating and tragic. They're yeah. they're definitely important things to keep in mind if if you have kids with ADHD, if you're a teacher, if you're a doctor, whoever you are. It's it's important to keep those gender differences in mind.
2: So we now want to hear from you because at least statistically there are folks listening who have ADHD. So, uh, I want to know how, how this resonates with you. Um, let us know your thoughts. MomStuffAdiscovery.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us over on Facebook. And we have a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I've got a note here from Christina, and it made me laugh because she wanted to talk about her Napoleon complex, <sighs> which uh, you don't hear about a lot of women describing their Napoleon complexes. But she says, I'm about one, and that's being generous. Because I'm so tiny, I find myself over overcompensating in certain areas, such as drinking. I've always ordered whiskey and Coke at bars. One, because everyone knows how to make a whiskey and Coke. And two, because I know how bartenders look at petite women like me. It doesn't help that I look like I'm 14. (laughs) I figured it's a respectable drink that's available in many bars, and I just got used to the taste. Even when I ordered these drinks, I would still get the occasional condescending comments or smirks. This personal preference seemed to carry over to my tastes in coffee as well. I started drinking Americanos when I started working at a cafe. My friends and I would also be able to predict what people would order based on how they look, and in this case, I am guilty of stereotyping since I judge people on their drink preferences. I knew firsthand what people thought about you, and I just didn't want to be placed in that box. Since then, I've learned to really enjoy bourbon, and I do enjoy the taste of espresso, even with the occasional steamed milk. Mostly it's now because the simpler the drink, the better it tastes. As much as I don't want to believe that stereotypes shaped me, I appreciate that it has. My drinking preference is the tip of my Napoleon complex. I've been more aggressive and stubborn on certain issues because of it. I worked so hard on not fitting in those stereotypes because I didn't want to be defined by them, but eventually they affected the way I am today. So
4: thanks for sharing your experience, Christina. That's so funny. I'm, I'm 5'2". I'm also a shorty and I feel sometimes like I have to be a little over aggressive. I would have
2: never known you were 5'2. I am. You are seven feet tall in my eyes, Carol. I'm also
4: wearing wedges today. I yeah, you do usually wear wear a heel. Wearing wedges. Um, yeah, no, I I, uh, I get looks because not only am I really short, but I think something about my youthful expression makes people think I am younger than I am. Um, but anyway, I have a Facebook message here from Amanda. She was writing in about our thyroid episode, and she has a question for me that I wanted to answer in case it, you know, helps out anybody else. Um... Disclaimer, I have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune disorder that causes hypothyroidism, which can lead to all sorts of things like weight gain, brain fogginess, tiredness, brittle nails. It's really fun. So anyway, Amanda wrote to say, you said there was a test that was helpful in diagnosis but did not mention the name. Was it the TSH or free T3, T4 that ended up giving you some answers? I have been going through some of the same struggles. The brain fog, weight gain despite diet and exercise, irritability, fatigue. My family doctor has attributed it to depression and placed me on antidepressants. My TSH levels were okay two years ago, but the symptoms have gotten progressively worse since then. I will be going back to the doctor and wanted to know which test to ask for. By the way, I love the show. My husband actually turned me on to you guys about a year ago, and I've been binge listening ever since. So I'm really glad you are, Amanda and husband, and Amanda's husband. Um, okay, so the test that I had that showed there was a problem, because my, uh, my TSH and my T4 free test results were normal. But my thyroglobulin AB test, so that's the antibodies, showed that there was an issue. The standard range for thyroglobulin AB is under 20. Amanda mine was 828 so that combined with a sonogram of my neck looking at my thyroid to see if there were any nodules if it was misshapen uh, anything like that the sonogram confirmed that I had Hashimoto's thyroiditis that was back in October 2013 and so I am due uh, in several months for uh, a repeat of that test And I just want to say that it is super common for you, for doctors, for your family to think that you are just depressed or dealing with anxiety. And if you don't have a history of depression or anxiety, or if you don't have a family history of it, I think it is really important to get a full thyroid workup if you just can't shake the weight, if you can't shake the brain fog, because who knows? I mean, what could it hurt besides a couple of vials of blood? So anyway, thank you so much for writing in, Amanda, and I wish you the best of luck. And thanks again to everybody who's written in to us. discovery.com is our
2: email address. And if you want to find us on social or find all of our podcast blogs and videos, there's one place to go. It's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics,
2: visit
3: HowStuffWorks.com.